This is Real Disciples Podcast 3 and uh, I'm here with Pastor Fred Ruby and uh, uh, we're going to talk about a few things in this podcast. We want to first of all kind of introduce you and uh, just kind of get to know you a little bit uh, and so um, when did you when did you um, get saved? I got saved in 1979. 1979. April 18th. I was 17 years old. And uh, my brother Ray had been converted about a year plus before that, him and a neighborhood friend. And they uh, harangued us, preached at us, uh, you know, basically invited us, just wouldn't leave us alone, and created in my mind a big inner struggle to whether or not God was real and all that. Yep. We did not grow up in a religious family, certainly not a Pentecostal type. We were Catholics. So uh, the whole idea was absolutely outrageous, but it was God. God started to get underneath our, uh, you know, underneath the cross, as they say. And uh, once God got underneath, it was pretty hard to resist the whole inner discussion. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, I, rem I remember going to the doctor when I was 17, just I forgot what it was, checkup or whatever, and he could tell he was our family doctor, Dr. Koenig. He had been, he had known him for years, and he said, um, what's wrong with you? You don't look like you're very happy. And I said, it's my brother. He's telling me about God, and I don't know what to do with it, you know? I remember actually telling the GP that, and the GP. It's actually funny, the, the doctor. <laughs> the doctor, all he said was, yeah, son, you're very young. You got years to think about that. Don't worry about it. And did you did you take years to no, think about I, it? No, I, okay. I thought, no, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I can't <laughs> shake this. He certainly wasn't tuned into the conviction of the Holy Ghost. The spiritual essence of it. Okay. Um, you have been in ministry for roughly how long? Full-time ministry. Full-time, just um, 30, or, you know, 33 years, 30. something like, no, 32 years. 30. Yeah, 30, 32 years. Okay. You have two children? I have two children, Jessica and Will. Jessica's a teacher in, in Tucson area. Yeah. And, you know, part of the Tucson church, her and her husband, uh, John Greer, and my son, Will, is, is a veteran in the United States Army, um, sergeant, and uh, served three tours. Wow. Where? Already. Afghanistan, Iraq, and lately, uh, Syria. Wow. So uh, he's, uh, he's a real soldier. He's a real soldier. He's very good at what he does as well. Wow. That must be difficult when, uh, you know, your you kid goes to war. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you just don't, you know I mean? You learn how to just cope and you just kind of pray and you just, you know, you just can't overreact to, to information. Although you become really sensitive to all kinds of uh, stories about casualties, mm. we follow that very closely. You can't help it. Anytime mm. you hear about... Uh, American, particularly American casualties for us, getting, uh, you know, uh, people dying or getting injured in, in some theater of war, it's, it, it stands out to us. We follow the story, we read it. So I sympathize with those families, those parents. Mm, okay. Um, so uh, your ministry, chronologically, you, you, where did you go first? Well, you know, I had an interesting start. I, I took over... Uh, a brand new work in Laredo, Texas. Mm. And that was a real education for me. I didn't stay there very long, just a few months. We had to 
put that thing on hold for a while. Frank and Lucy Escobar took over for us, uh, uh, took it over like a, a six months later. Mm. Uh, but uh, we really, for all intents and purposes, began in Las Vegas, New Mexico, to really minister uh, about six months after getting sent out. Richard okay. and Yolanda Ruby were there. You know Richard. Yeah. They went to Pioneer Church in Houston, Texas. And uh, Norma and I really got our first real exposure to an established ministry and, and you know, functioning as pastors. Okay. And then from there... How long was you there? We were there for almost 11 years. Okay. And God really helped us. We, we really experienced revival. Yeah. Uh, we, we, that's, the, that's where you, uh, you guys built the building? Yeah, we built a building. Um, we had a lot of revival amongst teenagers. Mm. Uh, many of those teenagers became um, a pastoral couples under Ray and Patsy Ruby that took over in the church. They have an incredible thing going on there. They've got a conference over 30 churches now. And uh, in fact, I think they're doing their conference this week. So just to, Las Vegas. just to um, highlight the point, that one church has had three pastors of the same family. Yeah. Three brothers. Exactly. And uh, it, didn't, it just worked out that way. We just all happened to be in that place at the time the movements were made. Wow. It's really odd. But uh, it's, it, it's interesting to us because uh, we're um, originally my dad's family goes back to the state of New Mexico, I mean, like 1700s. And so we are like, a, we're at, in, in a way, we're returning to a place that we actually originated from. So it's kind of an odd way of uh, that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, when yeah. we, our family got reconnected with the state of New Mexico, because we were living in Arizona as a family, um, then, uh, you know, it was, it's very, it, it, it has more, it's more than just a, a place to, to serve as a pastor, but it became, it was actually, in a lot of respects, you're kind of going home. You know, you kind of, there's a whole group of people that came over, like in 1740-something, that ended up there from, from Spain. Wow. So, colonists, it's a colony, actually, from yeah, way back. Yeah, yeah, Very, very remote colony. People and so don't that's even know a, about it. That's a conference church at the moment, as you said. The, the mm -hmm. conference is on this week or next week. 30 churches out, so that's very good on building and everything. Mm -hmm. So from there, you went to San, San Francisco. San Francisco, okay. Yeah. I was at a Prescott conference. Pastor Mitchell preached this incredible message on the cities of the world. Mm -hmm. I don't exactly remember what the text was, but I got just like it was plain as day to me that this was the next real move. Mm -hmm. And he gave an altar call, and I expected the whole altar to be filled with men. You know, you hear those kinds of messages. Yeah, yeah. And I remember uh, responding to the altar call and looking up, and there was just like a handful of guys. So I must have really got nailed by God. But I went fully expecting, here's the thing, I was fully expecting all the same level of success plus because it was a bigger city. Mm. And um, it was a real challenge. Different environment. I don't regret it. I don't yeah. regret it, but, it, but I got smacked upside the head. Would you think that you was doing the same things and expecting them to work yeah well uh, in a our, different environment our bread and butter had always been youth you know we that would was always our back in tucson in new mexico we were we were youngish we started young so uh, when i got to san francisco my kids started to come of age my daughter turned 13 uh it, suddenly they were beginning to be teenagers and uh, uh and, and it's a weird it's a generation gap thing Suddenly, there's a, it's like a, there's a blackout, like there's an eclipse. 
The sun was shining clearly. It was easy to relate. And when your own children become teenagers, and I'm very close to my children, mm. but you're you're not cool enough anymore. You know what I'm saying? You're a dad now. You're a dad you're now. You're, dad. you're a dad of a teenager, and, mm. and you just can't be relating to their friends in the same way. Okay. That's how I felt anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then from there, you went to Prescott? From there, I went to Prescott. Um, Assisted? For not quite a year and a half, Pastor Mitchell. Pastor Mitchell. And then when I was there, Pastor Greg came as well. Yeah. So I got to spend time on staff with them. And following that, um, I became, just for briefly, an evangelist to kind of figure out my next move. And and then uh, Pastor Warner had an opening for an assistant. Uh, some things had to move around. He needed an assistant. I agreed to do it temporarily. Mm. I remember uh, sitting down with him and, and you know, he said, this is the need. And I felt really obligated because they had really um, made a good investment in us in San Francisco. And so I felt obligated. I never had a problem with that. But I, it wasn't something after just coming from that, excuse me, it was not something I really was planning on doing. Yeah. But God never really cares what we're planning on doing, does he? Amen. Yeah. So, um, it was like a need, and I said, "Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll fill in until you get your man." He actually had a plan to get a certain person, and so I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll fill in." That fell through, and so my my stint filling in lasted o- over ten years. That's a long filling. It's <laughs> a long filling. Ten years, decade. Yeah, of filling in, of but filling you, but in. you definitely uh, did more than fill in. Um, okay, so and then, how did you end up here? <laughs> Well, you know, um, last well, a year ago in Tucson at the conference, it was a Thursday. It was after the seminars. I was figuring out where to eat lunch. Pastor Warner gave me a call, said it, asked me if I could come back in the building. You know, so I just walked in there, and suddenly he uh, brought to my attention that uh, Pastor Jala had some ideas and some ministry inspiration, and thought maybe whatever was going to happen there this might be the best time to make a transition as he worked out those things sorted that out and um he just kind of presented it to me and um i it all kind you know how those things they kind of happen in slow motion i kind of picked it up and kind of figured it out but it's funny i was telling somebody today that the month before that i was writing uh excuse me driving to Texas from Arizona. That's a long haul. You know, it's like 14 hours. Wow. And um, I was listening. I was by myself. So I was listening to the audible version, finishing the book called Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard. Mm. And it's a whole thing about Abraham and offering Isaac and whatnot. Anyway, there's a line in there that just, it, it just stuck me to the, to the, you know, to the, basically to the, the inner man, you know. Mm. And the line is, the movements of faith are by virtue of the absurd. The movements of faith are by virtue of the absurd. And uh, that thing, just it just stuck me. And so I remember writing it down, thinking about it. I quoted it in a sermon, probably didn't even know what I, how, how to apply it, but I just liked it so much, I just threw it out there. So I break that down. What does that mean? I think here's what it meant to me is that faith is basically two things. If you, you know, the book, Fear and Trembling. So faith is faithfulness, and that's what kind of faithfulness, if we're not careful, just settles into religion, people knowing what to do and doing it. But that's, an, that's a very important part of doing the right thing. But 
the movements of faith, where faith really transitions, where it accomplishes something, where it, where it applies to something and changes the world, is done by virtue of things that seem outrageous and absurd on the face of it. Outside of the norm of just doing the faithful. Yeah, exactly. Being faithful is a very important part of main, its maintenance. And it has to be there, mm. but it doesn't change anything unless somebody steps out of the normal and the natural and the easy and the things that make sense and does something absurd. So the movements of faith are always by virtue of the absurd. So, I mean, I'm just saying that's stuck in my craw. Pastor Warner's talking to me and this idea just comes back to my head. Just like, because I'm thinking, what am I going to do? You know, uh, and at this point, I'm going to go overseas. Um, you know what I mean? I, I don't have any real connection there other than I, the conference and the people, but you know what I mean? It just seemed, it was not in my thoughts. You think it wasn't something I was conjuring up. It wasn't something I was angling for. Okay. I wasn't like uh, telling Pastor Jal, hey, if anything ever happens, you know, I'm over here. I, didn't, I never did that. I didn't even think it would be a reality or even if I did do that, I didn't think that would make a difference. Yeah. But uh, when it came to me, that's how what I thought. I thought, this is the craziest thing I ever heard, but I think God put that in my spirit for a reason. So it was that one line that triggered uh, a sense of like, yeah, why not? Let's do this. It sounds great. So it was kind of like that. And then I called my wife, and after she fainted and got back up off the floor, we, she was able to like, whatever, let's just do it. So she was like, cool. Well, um, she was uh, absolutely tripped out by the idea until... You know when she made her decision? You know when they showed the video at the end of the Thursday night uh, service? Mm. She said, all right. And uh, I went back to Pastor Warner behind the curtain while the video, before the video started, said, yeah, Norma says she's ready to go. To go. <laughs> to go. So uh, the, the thing is, what was so bizarre about that is the whole video was about South London and, and, and Namibia, you know? Okay, yeah, yeah, I remember. So it's like, you know, okay, now that you made your decision, here's where you're going to be going. And it was kind of like a, a, a private viewing of, of here's your mission this if you choose it. to accept it sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, so that's why. Yeah. What, just, uh, I like that book. I like that statement that you've made from the book. Where, I mean, let me just unpick that a little bit more. I don't know what's going on there. But, yeah, let me, let me unpick that a little bit more. Where do we see, I mean, the absurd. So we're saying like Abraham just, God calling Abraham and him leaving his home and that type of yeah, thing. Ab absolutely. Um, he, he left everything and for, for a land he didn't even know much about. Uh, not only that, um, you know, you just break it all down by virtue of the absurd. Uh, trusting that he was going to be able to get an old lady pregnant. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty absurd. But not 80 and yeah, 90 you know, and 100, especially yeah. when you consider some of the science uh, involved in all of that. What does it say? It says in, in, in Romans, he was as good as dead. Even more than that, what Kierkegaard's book is really about is about him offering Isaac okay. on the altar. What uh, Abraham did was either a man going outside the box. You know, with an absurd act, it was so absurd that, but it was a faith act mm. because God told him to do it. Faith is not just being good. Sometimes faith and being good are, are, are opposites. If you're a good parent, you wouldn't do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so making good decisions. If you, sometimes faith says, get up and do something crazy. A good decision would be to 
put your money in the bank, right? Buy a reasonable house, stay where you are, stabilize your family. I mean, those are good decisions. That's not mm. bad decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But faith would require sometimes us not to do the expedient or, you know, the obviously good thing. So it's, you know, it's a pretty deep thought. But anyway, it helped me get here. Well, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Okay, so the whole purpose of the of the uh, the podcast is about being a real disciple of Jesus Christ, and we talk about you know be one to make one, be a real disciple. The reason why we say a real disciple is that there is so much in the West. I can't speak for the world, but I would say in Western Christianity is very much self-serving sometimes. Right. What when you hear that word disciple and we're called to make disciples and where Jesus says that, you know, if any man wants to be, you know, a disciple or come after me, uh what comes to your mind? How do you see that? I see it in, in basically two ways. One is a Christian disciple. And I think the responsibility of every gospel preaching ministry is to train people to live as Christians and mm. a, a New Testament believer lifestyle, yeah. you know, to break that down. And that sounds a lot easier than it actually is. In mm. fact, many churches that do have great preaching, tremendous worship, you know, presentations, tremendous children's ministry, they will stop short from requiring, you know, accountability in, in believers. And so I think what makes our ministry unique and not there are others that do it of course but you know the fellowship teaches people from the get-go that if you're going to call yourself a christian you should you should live like one mm. and i think that's your first and most basic form of christian discipleship right there mm. you know i'm talking about basic things like um how we live obviously that should be obvious but um and then your responsibilities as christians as going to church being faithful uh you know, being a, a member of a church in good standing, where you're, you're a blessing to the brethren, where you support the church financially, where, where you know what I mean, you, your, your, your lifestyle changes. You don't, you're not living like people in the world with a little church. And I think that's the big trap that a lot of souls that are genuinely touched by God in outreaches and evangelism and concerts or whatever, special events, mm, mm. they're moved by God and they pray and they cry out to God or they're touched by God. They don't live a Christian lifestyle. They're not dedicated to a Christian lifestyle. And I think that is what where discipleship begins right there, that people have to live as Christians. And we teach them and we, we basically say, if uh, you're not, if you call yourself a Christian, you're not living a, a, a lifestyle as a believer, you're not where you need to be. Mm. And to say that today, it's like, uh, you know, we live in the, the age of political correctness where you challenge anybody uh, on doing what they're not... What, you call them out for not doing what they should be doing and, and, and all, you know, automatically you're a hater. So, yeah. so again, that's where I would first, without that, any other form of Christian discipleship is, is pretty meaningless. I heard someone speak about a disciple. I was reading a book and, and, and the guy said, the disciple is someone who has found Jesus and realized that he's worth more than anything else. Right. That's, that's, he's found Jesus and then he realized he's worth more than anything else. And and in in that worth plays out to actual decisions, the hierarchy of values. Uh, I've, I've uh, just finished a couple of books on uh, well, one on Whitfield, 
Thank you for that recommendation, Dalimore, and then uh, Wesley. And uh, their impact was they believed that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that neither one of them really saw themselves as being rogue Anglican priests. Mm. Both of them, to their deaths, claimed that the, all they wanted to do was fulfill the will of God in relationship to, you know, to the church that he put them in. So it's pretty deep thoughts. But what they added to, to Christianity, and that was their idea, uh, for example, Wesley used what he called societies. You know, the midweek services really are based on this concept of organizing b- real, honest believers during the week mm. to minister or to be ministered to, mm. to be in a class where they're accountable, where they're being trained, where they're being taught. And so that's kind of their contribution. I think our, these services have been adopted to be like midweek services, you know, uh, years later. But I, their whole concept was... The Sunday morning service was not enough. A real Christian should live a Christian lifestyle, you know. And then if you're going to require that from people, then you should accommodate, accommodate that with, with, with teaching and, you know, and training and, yeah, and, yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. accountability groups and whatnot. Definitely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, me being in the ministry 10 years, looking back over the 10 years, I realized that it, the preaching, I mean, you know, we got to preach and I preach and, you know, try to preach the best sermons I can. But I realize is that um, you need, to, there needs to be this more teaching as well. From a, from a perspective of um, hands-on discipleship, you know, it's, it's not just enough to activate people. Okay, we're going to have this, so mm-hmm. do it. If you want people to live this thing throughout the week, they're going to need some... They're going to need more than just a Sunday morning uh, ritual. Yeah. And that's exactly what those guys uh, promoted. That was their great revelation. You know, the open-air preaching, as you read, that wasn't um, just a stage crusade by the church. Lay preachers were not allowed to preach in the services. They yeah, were, that's they right. Were, they, were, they weren't ordained to do yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. So they the had open, to. The open-air preaching was their venue. Yeah. Also, they didn't have buildings big enough to stage uh, those gatherings. And so the open air became the venue, you know, Blackheath, where there's uh, Whitfield's Mound at the Blackheath, yeah, and yeah. places like that, probably all over London. Yeah. But, you know, um, it, 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 the whole idea was Sunday morning is not enough. Christians need to be busy for God. So say like somebody gets saved, say there's a young guy, he comes into the church, he gets saved. Um, what does he need to do so that he can become a disciple? Well, I think th- this is where just trusting the ministry. Uh, you know, I think about myself. You asked me when I got saved in 79. Mm. Um, you know, to be honest with you, church was just part of that conversion. And the truth was the real evangelism and ministry and challenge came outside of a, ch- a church environment. Uh, I went to church with Ray a couple times, and uh, I think I got saved uh, each time, maybe three, four times, and it was done in such a way where um, I felt myself floating to the altar, not because uh, it was God, but because five guys were carrying me, you know, Uh, and I always like to to joke, but very much like back in the day, it was like um, being at a used car lot at the end of the month where everybody needed to make a sale, you know. Um, everybody would just attack you. And I would say, I'm never going back there. I'm never, ever. That was Tucson in the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> Absolutely. 
late 70s and they were they were uh i would say i'm never going back i was like 16 and i was like don't ever invite me again i i'm I, i'm not gonna do this you know and so to me it wasn't like oh i just have to go to church i felt just so the worship was so moving it wasn't anything like that it was more like man leave me alone but it was the holy ghost that was bringing conviction and then you know having little arguments i remember with ray like okay if i become a christian do i have to listen to keith green music he was like this uh you know the jesus people uh, uh prophet and uh you know do i have to do this do i have to and so it wasn't like church it was god god was convicting and, and church was to be honest it was a secondary idea to me at the time mm. i started going to church faithfully once i got saved i got convicted mm. this is where i needed to be mm. before you, that didn't want to be there at all would you say then that like because uh, i think for me discipleship was subconscious right it wasn't something that i ever said i want to be a disciple it was something that the church was doing and i just did whatever they were doing i got behind it you know once i got saved i was like yeah i'm saved i want to be involved in this so there's an outreach i'll go uh, I want to be involved in this type of thing. And so it kind of evolved. It was very natural, organic. Uh, Pastor Peter, they were just disciples. It was just Peter, Jay, Joe, Simeon. You know, they're all pastors now. But just hanging with them, them taking me on outreach, asking them Bible questions, um, where I think sometimes people that don't want to embed themselves within the culture, but they want to be a disciple or they want us to make them a disciple. But it's... It's like, okay, you know, um, I'm right. free this week. I'll come to a, a thing where it's... Yeah, absolutely. It, it's um, it, it, it's something where God's got to get a hold of your heart. And I think conviction is, is the first step in. Um, you need to be there. Where else are you going to be? You know, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, uh, What else are you going to do? Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just my nature. I had to be convicted into, into making these kinds of decisions. I made them. I believed in it. Um, and then as I began to kind of understand the ministry, I started liking the preaching. Mm. I started liking, uh, I started learning a lot from Pastor Warner. You know, he was, he was making sense to me, mm. that sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, they brought this evangelist named Larry Reed to town. Yeah, he was like a, a, a L.A. A gangster type, but not, not like we would know, like, you know, back in the zoot suit kind of. Okay. Uh, He's not the guy, was he, was he something to do with... Um Someone that went to San Quentin. Yeah, he was in San Quentin yeah, was, like for 18 total years on and off. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shooting heroin. Yeah, he's a bad but, guy then, man. He's a yeah, bad yeah. guy. Every, every, this guy, every part of his body was tattooed long before it was po Colin Kaepernick, you know, long before it was popular. So, um, uh, yeah, he was, he was very cool. And um, he, we got on fire. See, see, see what happens. You realize how it's all a process. Some people, they're checking it out. They're figuring it out. Mm. Oh, this guy's starting to make sense. You know, new converts, uh, that's why they have to be treated so carefully because you don't, uh, you don't really know where they're at, you know what I mean? But the idea that they were only there because of church was, in my mind, is a very false, a very, very false uh, perception. And if it is, they are there just because of church, they have a very, they have a very light conversion. Yeah, definitely. You know? Yeah, def def I remember going to my first outreach and I didn't know it was an outreach. So they said to me, they made an announcement and they said, uh, we got this, we got an outreach on Friday night. So I thought, oh, it must be a service. And they said, they're going to be in Elephant and Castle. So I thought I was going to turn up, there'd be these chairs <laughs> and we'd sit down in an uh, Elephant and Castle and Pastor Carnegie's going to preach to us. I'd been saved about three weeks. So I turned up 
I walked there and I was like, where's the chairs? And they're all standing. I was like, are we waiting for the chairs to turn, to turn up? <laughs> and, then, and then all of a sudden, someone got a bullhorn and started screaming. <laughs> and then, alive. And, yeah. And then they pointed to me to go. <laughs> Your turn. My turn, yeah. You know, I think that's the best, you know, the street meeting, I think, is the best form of street preaching. Yeah. Street ministry that people are just there testifying, new converts, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, we got invited to do that. I didn't really like it when I first went. I wasn't, yeah, but I liked the guy that invited us. Mm. He was a guy named Vince, and he was very interested in us teenagers and uh, challenged us, this, this guy, this African-American guy from New York. And he was, he was uh, we thought he was cool, and he was a good singer, and he was in a band, and he expressed interest in us. And uh, he's the guy that invited us to outreaches. And it wasn't like a big church-wide thing either. It was just his little group. Mm. And and uh, we learned how to street preach from him, but I liked him. I thought he was a good man, a cool guy, and I I was responding to him. And, you know, the whole thing was as crazy as can be. You know, I, I think that's getting the, out on the street corner with a bullhorn. Yeah. But the idea is that that's I think part of discipleship, right? There's somebody you they they reach out to you, yes. they show you how to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Here's yeah. how you do it. The thing it's more organic where some you're follow you're you're being inspired by somebody. That, but God is convicting you already. Right. But you know is, you need to do something. Yeah. And then this guy say, hey, let me show you how. Like Ananias with Paul. Hey, yeah. it's what you do. Barnabas did the same thing, right? Mm. Let me show you how to. So that's a big part of discipleship. Like you're mentioning the word organic. It's not just a program. Mm. There are people that are genuinely um, reaching out. And, and this thing, I will just bring this up because it doesn't, it doesn't matter in the big picture, but it matters in this story. Vince, we found out later was actually um, under some kind of, you know, local body discipline at the time that he was reaching out to us. So it wasn't even like, uh, you need to go talk to these young guys and, and try to stir them up. It wasn't that at all. He just did it out of his heart. Mm. Saw us, connected with us, and mm. said, hey, guys, let me show you what to do. It mm. was like that. I think that's the only way. We've tried, I, I always say we, you try so many follow-up programs, and none of them never really work. It only works when it's organic. Yeah, they, 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 they're good. I believe the follow the best follow up will ever be is a good accounting program. That's yeah. and I think that's important. Counting no, no, is, no. is important. Yeah, uh, but I think that's the best it will ever be. Mm. Is a good account a good accounting what program? Are they there? Not there. Yeah, who's no. this? Who's that? Where yeah. are they from? When did they get saved? Yeah. Do you know where they live? That sort of thing. Exactly. Okay, let's move on from um, discipleship. So. Um, a while ago, we had a conversation. You 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 mentioned the book um, about from Jordan Peterson, I believe it is. Yeah, um, his book has it's called Twelve Rules for Chaos or something like that. For something to that yeah. effect. Twelve, 12 rules, for rules for life. For life, for life you know how to organize your life in chaos. Chaos, yeah. Um, but I think going, you're connecting these two ideas. But let me go back to that. Um, the idea here comes from now. I'm not trying to get deep, but it comes from. Um, Genesis, right, mm. where it says in the beginning God created, you know, and the earth was out without form and void. And so the famous, and it's a famous argument, anybody can Google these two words, mm. or two and a half words, tohu vebohu. Mm. And uh, that means um, those are the two words used in the King James without form and void, but actually uh, would literally say, you know, with, you know, in chaos and devastation. I mean, there's different ways you can say it. But uh, isn't be... it in Jeremiah or somewhere else? Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, those exact 
words, was. the exact phrase is used in Jeremiah to describe the land of Israel after battle and destruction. Mm. So uh, the idea is that it's not just, you know, if you read the King James words, you can get the feeling that there was just absolutely nothing and a big, a big hole in, in, in the, of nothing. Mm. And, but if you take that approach, that um, there's, a, there's a good chance that the earth as we know it, Adam and Eve and all that, was created out of that void. And it, it was, it was, there was more going on there. So, so the, anyway, the idea is that mankind from the very beginning has, has a place in organizing God's purpose and God's kingdom, right? Mm. So, you know, a little fast forward, Adam and Eve, and what does God tell Adam? He says to him, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. Now, wait a minute, subdue what? He's living in paradise. Mm. I mean, you know, the, the, the peaches are, are hanging at, at about four feet. What, what does he need to subdue? Uh, well, I think it's, he's foretelling something, right? Yeah. Replenish yeah. the earth. Yeah. You're not going to live here forever. And when you get, and when you get out of here, you're going to have to, you're going to have to work really hard to organize chaos. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, a salesman to represent the knowledge of good, of good, and tr- the, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. You know, we call him the serpent. All of those things are there to bring about a man who's going to have to make some choices eventually, I think, and, and who will have all the tools he needs in order to organize the world. So once he gets out of the garden, what happens? He's got this entire new lexicon with words like thorn and thistles and pain, and mm. suffering and mm. sweat, and blood. There are a few, there's a, you know what I'm saying? So I think there's a lot in there that suggests that, uh, again, in God's great sense of knowledge and providence, because we don't have that perspective, but he knew that man was was going to be, in order to for us to become the worshiper and the lover of God, we are going to have a challenge to meet, basically. So, um, so all right, let me leap out of that, what, we're, what, what I get from out of it, and then you, you tell me what you think, is that God kind of makes man and has designed man to bring that order out of chaos that god uses man yeah absolutely to work so let's bring that to 2018 so uh, you know so many times i hear men say things like i would do better if everything was perfect yeah and what i'm thinking is well if everything was perfect we wouldn't need you right because god makes man to bring order out of chaos right he puts you know, and so it's like that marriage is chaos. That company is chaos. To make money in this world is chaos. Those kids are chaos. <laughs> right. That, that's that's part of life. And right. what it is, you need a a man. And so, so many men are thinking, well, when everything is perfect, then I'll be the man I'm supposed to be. Right. Well, that's when we don't need you. Right. The- you know the whole phrase a husband you know it's not we use it just for for marriage husbands and wives right but husbandry Mm. is keeping a garden yeah yeah yeah. you know and and a garden would be a weed patch right without a husbandman yes to use the old word yes yes so that's kind of how man has been designed uh there's a good great book that the one that really inspired me for that thought see and some of these thoughts you know i don't know i can get abstract sometimes but um is, is a book called Knowledge is Power by George Gilder, something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he talks about 
chaos in the sense of, of, of you know, things in entropy, things just kind of slipping mm. into their a form of disorder. Mm. And that the entrepreneur, and he's speaking about in the context of, 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 of economies and mm. businesses, the mm. entrepreneur's job is to organize something out of chaos. Perfect, says, yes. This is what entrepreneurs always do. Mm. The best entrepreneurs find a situation. He says there's, there's got to be sub-factors that are, that, are, that are good. There's got to be some, some economic stability in the background. But when you find you know, disorder, an entrepreneur's job right, is to f make sense out of that disorder. So he ends up organizing in the disorder and he makes a lot of money well yeah so so let's think about that that's like uber the chaos is how does my wife get home when i'm not here right there's the chaos a guy who's an entrepreneur thinks up of this company called uber that now my wife can see the blah, 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 and that's ebay how do i sell this old hat that I don't right. use anymore. That's the chaos. Yeah, or, or, and part of the chaos would be going to like, uh, um, we call them flea markets in America where there's just massive chaos and, 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 and you know, uh, shysters and, 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 you know, homeless people. And, and you just get the whole picture and say, no, nah, we, we can do this better. And, and you organize something yeah. that's more to the point and more effective, right? That's what entrepreneurs do. That's why every preacher... Now, let me segue to the second part of... Of discipleship right we're talking about discipleship mm, in mm. the sense of replicating a mm. ministry model that's working and touching people and winning souls for christ mm. and making believers into followers of christ uh you have to have an entrepreneurial spirit to function in that mm. because you're, you're well, every time we send somebody out he's gonna in a sense we're sending him into chaos right mm. in disorganization mm, mm. And if you're talking about the individual life of a person that just gets saved, the chaos they're facing, or just there's nothing, there's nothing naturally in the favor of doing of what he's doing. He's got to have to go out and organize it completely through hard work, prayer, dominion. This is why to a disciple, uh, one of the greatest themes every disciple, every man particularly, needs to grasp is the, is the theme of dominion, taking authority, mm. grasping something, and say, "I'm going to make something." I think that's your first great step, and it begins spiritually prayer. You start getting dominion. You start functioning. Dominion over your home. Dominion over in your marriage. Dominion in your ministry. And so, yeah, because you think a dominion is a locale. It's a locale. It's a it's an area where now this is where you rule. Yeah. So you go to whatever it is, and so it's like now I rule. This order is in this now. Yeah. And that really is the pioneer. And when you were saying that, I was thinking that's why sometimes it is a bit futile to make excuses. I think we've all done it. We've all done it. I'm not going to say sure. anybody. I've done it. But when you start to look at an area, it's like, oh, but there's demons in this area. There's a spirit of witchcraft in mm -hmm. this area. There's poverty in this area. Yeah, almost every conference, somebody testifies <laughs> that there's more witchcraft per capita in his city than any city yeah, in the there's world. There's more witches, you always, yeah. hear, you always hear that. He lives next door to uh, Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. And, exactly. Uh, and so, um, but the reality is that's why we've sent you there. Right. That's the whole point of it. And it's for a man to realize, hold up. I think once men realize, hold up, God has created me and empowered me. And he uses me to bring order to this chaos. And I, and I, and I step into that challenge. And yet it's way beyond me. Right. It's way beyond my talent and ability. But that, once I believe that is my position, that's who I am. I seek God. I, 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 I get hold of heaven. And God touches me and he flows through me and his order 
brings you know that that the the cosmos to the chaos you know it brings order brings right and and in getting back to adam isn't that what ha- happened with adam uh we know adam sinned we know that um terrible things got released into the human experience from that but i sometimes i don't think he gets enough credit for his recovery uh, number one god clothed them right mm. He killed animals and he clothed them. Mm. And then the second thing that he did was that when Adam went out, I mean, Adam organized in about a thousand years. He organized a pretty uh, impressive uh, society. And for in all, you know, I've never looked at when, when you consider all the things that they had to do. Yeah. And I was mentioning this in a message the other day. People see pyramids or stone hands or something and they say, it must have been aliens because man, you know, at that time, if you follow the, the, the wisdom of 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 of, of evolution mm, man was yeah. completely incapable Dumb then and yeah yeah you know he clever. was dragging his wife around by a hair by the hair with 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 a billy club man was brilliant according to the bible in his in his inception made in the image of god and god said in in uh, the you know the story of the tower of babel if we don't stop this there's nothing he's going to take on that he won't be able to accomplish mm. so Mm. I think man could build a pyramid and and he could organize Stonehenge for whatever reason. But, uh, you know, that Adam had all that working for him. So when he went out into a world of thorns and thistles and weeds, after probably three weeks of uh, him and Eve going back and forth, blaming each other for the mess, I think they settled down and started to uh, create a world, you know. The other thing I wanted to uh, speak about was um, this is just an idea that, that kind of leapt at me from that book, the Jordan Peterson book. And, you know, there's a lot of things in there I don't, I don't you know, I don't really agree with totally. You know, there's a lot. Of, yeah. He, he mean, goes off onto he, all these he, tangents. He, yeah, he has a certain but worldview. But I like the thinking. I like how he's thinking about certain things. And um, one of the things I heard him say, I can't remember if I read it or I saw it on the blog where he was speaking about um, Cain and Abel and this was a thought that really uh, stuck in my mind where here you have these two men who make sacrifices mm-hmm. one is accepted one is not as accepted um, and so the one who is not as accepted God is saying what you've done is just not right it's not the right thing and at that point, he's at a juncture where he can take responsibility and say, okay, I, what I've done is wrong. What should I do? But he doesn't. And then God says, listen, if you do wrong, you know, sin lies at the door. And it's almost like by a man not taking responsibility, he opens the door to becoming a darker individual. Right. Whereas, and uh and so now he looks at his brother he looks at other people because if you don't take responsibility you've got to keep saying i'm doing the right thing but even though it's not producing what i want it to produce the world must be wrong everybody else must be wrong because i'm doing the right thing because you won't take responsibility rather than saying you know what um no what i've done is wrong and i think it's hard because he's not, it's not like he was selling crack and he's a pimp sending out <laughs> girls. And then his brother is like doing a Bible study. He did make a sacrifice. It just wasn't the right sacrifice. Right. And here is someone who's trying to do the, 
trying to kind of do something, maybe little, maybe not enough, but because it's not producing what you want. Maybe in your marriage, you're doing, well, I do this, or maybe as a pioneer, I'm doing this. But it's, it's, yeah, you are doing something. We're not saying you're not doing anything. But because it's not producing the fruit you want, you start to, either you've got to turn around and say, maybe I'm not doing this right. Or you've got to say everything else is wrong. And that you become a very critical, bitter, darker, you know, mentally individual. I, th I think that's a, a very good breakdown of, of that story. Um, you know, the book of Genesis, you could just e as easily call the book of origins. Mm. So it's a great book to look at when you're looking for how things originate in people, right? Mm. Impulses, ideas, thoughts, actions. Uh, and uh, I think that story right there tells you how the first uh, born people behaved. Mm. And so, yeah, I think those things are, are common in, in, uh, in human nature. And the interesting thing to me about that story is it's really about Cain. You know, Abel doesn't say one word to God. Mm. They don't even, they don't speak. It's all, it's all a discussion between Cain and God, the whole thing. It's just God, and even God encouraging him. And so I've always seen this, and I think it's important to understand this in the context of what you're saying about a man reject, getting angry and rejecting God and feeling uh, a lot of self-pity and, mm. and self-will, is that God was rooting for him the whole time. Mm, yeah. I mean, he was God's first grandchild for all intents and purposes. He was the first born human being. That's right. And I think uh, God, like a grandfather, would tell a child, hey, hey, you'll be all right, kid. Just get up. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. You'll be, you'll be fine. Mm. And, and uh, we just see how, this sin, how sin was already metastasizing in the, in, in the human soul, mm. where rather than, and I think this is where your observations are really key, that rather than obey God and say, okay, I'll just do it the way you want me to do it, we dig our heels in and we say, no, I'm going to do this my way. And that's all it was, right? It was just a my way sort of thing. Yeah. Like you said, he wasn't doing anything evil. The greatest evil there was my way. Yeah. And if I can't do it my way, then, I'll, then, then um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retaliate. I'm going to lash out. And that's exactly what he did. And put the blame on, on his brother. Yeah, I think one, the other thing I see in it is that you know, to do it, God's way, you had to make a sacrifice, something that couldn't come back. Right. And so many times for us, we've got to let something of us die. We've got to change. And to change, you've got to let something of you die. Something that, you know, it's a deeper cut, whereas we don't want to change. Well, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, Cain offered the fruits of his, of his labor. Um, you know, Abel was paying attention. I, I mentioned how God covered Adam and Eve, right? With mm, skins. Mm. That meant sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Mm. And he picked that up. He understood it. And so when it came time to honor God, uh, that was, I think, there must have been some kind of understanding between them for him to require that of Abel. I don't think uh, Jordan Peterson goes into that I, part no, of it. No, he doesn't. But um, I think there had to be. Otherwise, how can you require something of somebody that you didn't explain? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think there's some assumptions in there. But going back, this, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Abel didn't bring blood. 
I mean, Cain, rather. Abel did. Mm. I think it's interesting what you said, that he, that he picked it up, that, you know, he's he's observant. He's seeing, okay, this is God. How do I do with God? This is rather than me. What does he want from me? <clears throat> yeah. And so I think that's one of the greatest motivations of all discipleship, right? Like Paul said when he got knocked down on the road to Damascus, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I think that uh, a lot of religion is like Cain. It's like, I'll bring what I bring, you know? Not, Lord, what do you want me to do? Mm, very good. Very good. Okay, so, um, yeah, that was all I had to ask. Anything? What, no. are you, what are you reading at the moment, Pastor? What's the good books that you I'm recommend? Reading, uh, I'm, I'm just going through, um, right now, um, Alexander Hamilton. Okay. By a guy named Chernoff. I'm kind of halfway through it. Pretty good. Pretty good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, just the the nuts and the bolts of, of American government. I, I took a class on uh, the Constitution, so this actually is incredibly enlightening to that whole process. Yeah. Because that's what it's pretty much about. He was one of the found, the framers of the American Constitution, one of the founders of the American government, the first Treasury Secretary. Yeah. And also the subject of a, like, a hip-hop play here in London right now called Hamilton. I've heard of it. I've not been there, but I've, 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 <laughs> so, I've heard of it. It almost sounded like, seen it. Almost sound like he was going to advertise it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm kind of on and off with that and um, different books. Good stuff. And the uh, conference, all is going well? Yeah, yeah. You know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm kind of a passenger right now. There's just such a learning curve. What the, Pastor Ajala had going on here was, is a machine, you know, mm. so I'm, I'm just watching and pretty much following the lead of these guys. Pastor Prez is doing a great job. Good stuff. Uh, putting it together and whatnot. Very I good. I have a lot of confidence in, in what he's doing. Yeah, there's a good team there, man. Mm -hmm. Very good. A good team. Okay, well, I think that's it. Come to the end. We thank... Thank you for we, the invitation. No, we appreciate you doing it's that. A cool setup. We'll all keep you in our prayers. And um, that's it. The end of the podcast.